Where do I start? How do I train recall? How long should we work on healing before moving on? Is crate training really that important? We hear these questions all the time and there's one answer that will help with all of them. The complete step-by-step -step dog training course found at Standing Stone Supply. They break down the what, when, where, and how to train your own dog from eight weeks to one year old. They've got it all laid out for you down to even the daily activity checklist to keep you and your puppy on track. Check out standingstonesupply.com and remember to use code GDIY to save 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. It's all pieces of a puzzle. The dog training is one part, you know, understanding the ecology and getting yourself in the right spot is the part, you know, shotgun shooting and, and being an effective wing shooter is definitely a part too. It's one of those things where, where being a good wing shot should be as important as any other part of that process. Having a balance of ability is, is really important, I think. If you over-focus on any one aspect of the experience, it, it'll have a detriment on all the others too. Have you ever shot a bird that just keeps on flying and you're standing there saying, I swear I hit that bird? Well, good news. Maybe it might not be you, but rather your shotgun. Go check out UplandGunCompany.com and construct the perfect shotgun that is not only built to your exact physical specifications, but your preferred looks as well. To some people, a shotgun not only has to perform, but look good while doing it also. Upland Gun Company has made this process super convenient and surprisingly affordable when you consider all of the completely customizable features. Get your shotgun order submitted today so you're standing there with your dog saying fetch rather than standing there still saying, I couldn't have missed that bird. No two hunters approach the field the exact same way. That's why it's nice to have a vest that can be completely customized to fit your specific needs. Final Rise creates high-functioning upland gear that delivers comfort and balance that assists you chasing wild birds in wild places. The vest's unique lumbar pad and weight-bearing waist belt makes it too easy to keep going to the next horizon. Add in any of the awesome and functional accessories for the vest along with their new tactical apparel and you'll be outfitted with a complete setup that was proudly sourced and sewn right here in the USA. Check out FinalRise.com to order yours today. All right, everybody, welcome back to another week of GDIY presented by Standing Stone Supply. I am joined this week by Dell Whitman of DC Whitman Guns Custom Gunsmithing. Dell, how you doing this evening? Good, good. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. So anybody that's been listening to GDIY for a while, they know uh, w there's been a few kind of gear-centric uh, or specific episodes over the years just recently. I, ju I just did one on uh, the custom boot making with Lathrop and Sons, and while we were at it, I thought it might be fun to kind of go f deeper into some of the gear stuff that I'm not usually accustomed to and something that is kind of uh, a proponent for everybody, upland hunting or bird hunting in general, is a uh, shotgun and what all goes into shotguns, custom shotguns, fitting, all, all that fun stuff. And uh, from my understanding, you're pretty much the, uh, the correct man to come on and address this topic for me. Well, thank you. 
I'd like to think so. <laughs> well, you know, typically the the episodes I've heard you on, you, you've been on, featured on a number of them, but uh, probably the one that most listeners are familiar with is uh, you've been on Birdshot a few times with Nick Larson. And so you guys kind of handle everything from a, a higher level in terms of uh, uh, people that really do a deep dive on shotguns and custom guns and stuff. And so this is not going to be that on that level. I'm going to keep it more... Uh, uh, I don't know, relatable or elementary, if you will. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. Before we jump into that, though, I need to know a little bit more about you. Go ahead and kind of introduce yourself. Tell tell everybody where you're calling from and kind of how you just fell into the shotgun world. Well, it was it was actually pretty deliberate. Um, but I, I'm I live now in the Traverse City area of the Lower Peninsula of Michigan. So if you kind of you know do the exercise where you look at the palm of your right hand, I would. And you know the the tip of your index fingers, the the um, the Mackinac Bridge. I would be kind of at the tip of the uh, pinky finger, kind of right down there, pretty close to the shore of Lake Michigan. I'm originally from uh, Southern Minnesota, and uh, and I spent a few years out in California working for a gun manufacturer on the Central Coast. But I I went to gunsmithing school uh, at Pine City Technical College, got my gunsmithing degree there, and was was lucky enough for a for a few years there for there was an instructor there who was there for six years and i studied under him for the three years i was there who um was more uh pine tech predominantly they did a lot of like parts changing and maintenance of more modern guns and you know more production guns and um bruce Le- bruce lepage my instructor um at the college kind of pointed me more in the direction of custom gun making and specifically English guns and side-by-side American guns and, and that sort of thing. So once I worked there, um, I had a connection to the company that was working with Rigby's and later bought Rigby's um, in California. And I spent about four years out there working for them, mainly manufacturing side-by-side double rifles and, you know, big bolt guns and also some shotguns that that you know predominantly went to Africa and were were used in Africa for big game hunting there and um i just kind of eventually decided that i uh, california is a beautiful place but i didn't want to spend you know the rest of my life there i kind of wanted to get back to the midwest and there was a um a shop in the traverse city area that i had come and kind of done an internship with when i was in college uh for a few weeks one summer and they were looking for an in-house gunsmith and you know they predominantly sold uh high-end uh shotguns and in wing shooting apparel so i worked for them for about a year and a half and it just it was uh it's a it's a great shop i still have a good relationship with them but it just wasn't a good good fit um to be their in-house gunsmith so i started my own business and that was in roughly 2005 and i've been you know self-employed um gunsmith since then and i specialize in repair and restoration um stock making gun fitting uh all primarily geared towards upland wing shooting and um uh, target shooting shotguns and and mostly side by side and and uh over and under guns mm-hmm. so so you you've been at it for quite a while pretty much doing everything from from the butt end all the way to the end of the barrel, it sounds like for twenty plus years by yourself. I got. I'm curious. When you're growing up, did you were you bit by the shotgun bug automatically, or did you did you kind of come through it through hunting? Do you even remember? 
It was, well, it was there, there was both. I mean, I've, I've hunted for my whole life, came from a hunting, you know, outdoors family. And, and, uh, I, when I was a kid, there was a, a group of local sportsmen went together and, um, uh, built basically kind of like a municipal shooting range. It was called the Renville Rangers, uh, shooting range. And it's kind of North of Bird Island, Minnesota, not, not too far, of, you know, not too far from where I lived in my, my dad was involved in that. So I grew up at a, uh, shooting a lot, um, of trap skeet and some, you know, quasi sporting clay stuff. And then I actually got very into shotgun shooting, uh, predominantly American skeet and, you know, some international skeet and, and the sporting clays and five stand type, uh, venues and, uh, shot through, through high school. And then of course, uh, being a gunsmithing school, there was a, um, collegiate shotgun shooting team that I was on there too. So, so yeah, I, I was, you know, I, I've, I've shot shotguns, uh, you know, recreationally and for hunting and competitively as long as I can remember. So, so I'm curious, you know, you get into the upland world specifically, like you described it, that you're in, obviously you have an affinity for shotguns. I mean, that's, that's your living, that's your life, livelihood and, and all that. Uh, but with the upland hunting comes dogs as well. When did the dogs enter the picture for you and where do they fall in on Dell's hierarchy of up, upland uh, culture, so to speak? Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I, so I went through a pretty long period, you know, when I was out in California, I really couldn't have a dog there. Of course, when I was in college, but as, as you know, I grew up hunting over dogs, predominantly, you know, pointing dogs and, uh, I really, as soon as I got planted here in Michigan, I got a short hair again. And then, and then shortly after that, I, I got another German short hair and I've, I've really, um, I, I really was kind of a big running pointing dog guy, you know, short hairs and English pointers for, for most of my life. And then here a few years ago, I, I kind of, I don't know if it was a midlife crisis or what, but I, I had some issues with my knees. I had some injuries from when I was in, um, in high school sports and i i just kind of wanted to change the way i was hunting a little bit and i ended up so now i've got a, a field bred english cocker and a french Brittany, and um the cocker spaniel experience was kind of everything i hoped it would be and more i i i may have a bunch of different hunting breed you know pointing dog breeds in my life in the future but i don't think i'll ever be without a cocker spaniel again um and my French Brittany, he's my first Brittany. And, uh, it's, uh, it's been an interesting experience. The transition from training short hairs to a French Brittany was what the, the learning curve was steep on that. Let's put it that way. And, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm learning as much about training, training him as, uh, as he's learning from me. So that seems that that's kind of the general for everybody, whether we care to admit it or not. Uh, I'm curious on, on the cocker. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the Brittany too, and then we'll kind of get into the nuts and bolts of, of the shotgunning. Do you, are you got, are you working both of them separate? Is it, like, are you going out and you have a flushing dog hunt and then you go out later and you have a pointing dog hunt or is the goal at the end of this to be able to work both of them at the same time? Yeah, it's, it's all the above, but it, it, you know, so when I kind of went through this, like I said, epiphany or midlife crisis I had a while back, I, I really wanted both. And I wanted to have the ability to, you know, use, use them individually in covers that, that, you know, would benefit from their specific hunting styles. And, you know, 
I guess I tend to hunt a lot more um, objectively now, and that's what the what the cocker really shines at. Like if you're working a piece of edge cover or you're working island cover, and you know it's it's basically like you're piloting the ship, and he's just kind of a minesweeper that's out in front of you. And the English, my English cocker, and and you know some from his line kind of have some distinctive things they do that make them really effective for rough grouse and woodcock, which which is what you know that's my home turf those are my home turf birds and you know what I, what I hunt the most of and kind of enjoy the most. But, but uh, so anyway, and then of course the Brittany and, and interestingly, my Brittany actually runs pretty big for a Brittany. I, when I got him, I thought he, you know, I, I got a specifically a French Brit because I wanted a, a, a much closer working dog and he actually ended up, has ended up working a little bigger than I anticipated, but um in the end, I kind of, I kind of like that, but to your point of working them together, I do work them together and, and Bill, my cocker is trained to flush out pointing dogs. And it's, um, it's something I always wanted to do. And of course, you know, a lot of the, the quail hunting in the South is done that way. And I've, I've kind of retrofitted that style onto grouse and woodcock and it's, um, it, it's really effective and just a lot of fun. Um, and, and surprisingly to me, it, it's shocking. And, and of course, Bill, I've got him trained to work with a couple other of my friends that, you know, that I hunt with routinely with their pointing dogs. And, um, it's pretty shocking how quick the pointing dogs get used to that. You know, you think it's going to turn into, uh, you know, kind of just a, a big mess as far as the pointing dog, not want to hold and, and, uh, this and that, but man, it, it's, it really surprised me how quickly they figured that out. So, you know, to the point where, and, and it's like, you know, to the point now, my, uh, one of my friends that I hunt with routinely, he's got a, a kind of a unique older collar, um, and uh, the point alert is real distinctive, and Bill will literally, like, hear that collar going off, and and saw either stop or soft heel back to me and start going in to get into the situation where I'll release him in a flush, like, you know, they they at least bill they pick that up pretty quick and, and the pointing dogs do too they i, I think they they kind of know when uh you know another dog is trying to sneak in on them and and you know i think uh they figure out pretty quick when it's part of the program so yeah and i've i've spoken a little bit on on previous episodes to where when you get the flushing dog that will work with the pointing dog it's it's one of the coolest things and nicest you know ways to set your up yourself up for a shot uh that's that's possible i think but man when it's done wrong if those dogs aren't trained to the correct level it can turn into a, a pretty pretty dirty mess like very very quickly and i'm i'm just curious it sounds like you said that both dogs kind of get used to it fairly quickly uh i don't have that much real like hunting world practicality experience doing it i've done it a few times in an actual wild bird scenario i've seen it more done on the uh the planted bird side but from my perspective it's almost as if it's if it's gonna get messed up usually nine times out of ten it seems like it's coming from the pointing dog side of things maybe they're not uh coached up steady all the way through do you have any thoughts or experience in terms of that would you kind of tend to agree with that well, I, I think, I think anybody who has, um, effective dogs in the field will agree that having a absolutely rock solid, um, very dependable, 
you know, whoa on your dog or stop on your dog is crucial. I mean, that's the foundation for pretty much everything, really. And, you know, being able to get your st- dog stopped and, and stay stopped, it's, it's something that, that's really important. And that really helps in that scenario, you know, and that's one of the things with, with Bill. Um, and, and this might be kind of off the exact topic, but one of the things that makes him so effective is just having that hard stop. So if I'm, you know, I use a little number 11, you know, Acme Spaniel whistle. And, you know, if we're coming up to a piece of cover and, um, you know, he's starting to act birdie, or I think there, you know, there might be a bird in there or just, you know, Hey, there's a good chance there might be a bird in that cover and I'm not in the right spot or he's too far ahead of me. I just give him the one little stop toot on the whistle and, and he stops and he needs to stop and has to stay stop, you know, stay stopped until I get where I want and I release him. And, you know, that's, uh, I'm not saying either of my dogs are perfect at that, but, um, you know, that's kind of the foundation when you get in that scenario. And if Bill, you know, the cocker wants to get a little antsy and the, the pointing dog isn't totally set up or the pointing dog looks like it's getting a little frisky, you know, just, just to be able to put the brakes on the situation, let everything settle back in and then, you know, get yourself in proximity and release the dogs. And, and two, it, it's, um, and this is, this is, kind of getting down in the weeds with with specifics of training my i i will release my pointing dogs i always have i know some people think that's just absolute heresy but but i for a long time and i still do predominantly hunt by myself and there's a lot of situations where i don't want to be the one flushing the, the bird because i need to put myself in proximity or you know you just you just can't get to it so i will I have, you know, my pointing dogs train on a release. So they'll go in, you know, I'll, they'll be on point. I'll get to where I want to be. And then, and then, you know, I can, you know, release them verbally from, from remote. And uh, so that helps too, because then I think, because that, then the dog, you know, your pointing dog realizes like, I've got to stay here until I get turned loose. So when I give the release to the cocker, the pointing, you know, the pointing dog is usually releasing as well. Uh, and, and yeah, and, and, and like, I'm sure you'll have some listeners that are just, just grinding their teeth right now about, <laughs> and, and I get it. Like, you know, I, I get it. And, and different hunting styles, you know, hunting predominantly rough grouse hunting to be really proficient at it. It's, it's a very, it's a lot different than a lot of other kinds of bird hunting, you know, stuff, stuff that norms that you would have, if you're predominantly a pheasant or a prairie bird hunter, like they're not, those things don't hold, aren't going to, you know, hold true when you're in early to mid season, you know, even right before full leaf drop, you know, real Northern rough grouse hunting. It's, it's a different, different set of rules when you're, I shouldn't say different rules. There's just a lot of different circumstances that, that make things more necessary or, or less necessary, depending on what you're doing. Right. So. Yeah, and and there was about three or four different things that I'm just uh, I'm biting my tongue to to continue going down that path and asking questions, but that's not what what we had you on here. But ultimately, what you're getting at is setting yourself up for the best shot selection because we go hunting for a reason. We want to be successful. We do want to shoot the birds, and how you get there is kind of up to each individual person and their dogs and, and their hunting style and strategy and so forth. But no matter what, at the end of the equation, everything that you do from the truck all the way through every sequence and contact leads to the to the point to where 
hopefully you're taking a shot at the bird and hopefully you're getting an effective shot at the bird. And that's where the shotgun comes in, right? It's like, no matter what, like I just said, the hunt can be completely different for everybody, but at the end of it, you're still hopefully aiming a shotgun at a flying bird. And that's kind of where my my interest in shotguns and trying to learn more about them as well as the ballistics that I use is I feel like I've done a pretty decent job over the past few years of becoming better at hunting the birds as well as handling the dogs and training the dogs but it seems like I'm not I'm not taking the next step on my shooting capabilities and that's where you come into play and I I'm really hoping to pick your brain and and maybe you can kind of set me on the right path to improve the actual shooting portion of my game. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean I I think you're right on there. I can't, you know, reiterate enough how, you know, it, it's it's you know, a sportsman's going going into the woods or going, you know, out in the field should never be about just filling a game bag, but you know, we do have a responsibility to shoot as well as we can, you know, for, for reasons of being humane. And, you know, with all the great lengths that we go through to make this happen, if, if the rare circumstance, you know, that it actually does and, and your dog training is paid off and, you know, you, you put all your time into scouting and getting yourself in the right position and done everything right. I mean, I do want to bring that moment to fruition, reward the dog and myself and, and this and that. So, so again, the, it, it's all pieces of a puzzle and the dog training is one part, you know, understanding the ecology and getting yourself in the right spot is the part and, uh, and, you know, shotgun shooting and, and being an effective wing shooter is definitely a part too. So absolutely. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where we're being a good wing shot should be as important as any other part of that process. You know, you, you, you can't it, having a, having a balance of ability is, is really important. I think you don't, you know, you don't want to, if, if you over focus on any one, you know, aspect of the experience, it, it'll have a detriment on all the others too, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a balancing act, just like everything else that we do. You know, if all you do is, is dog training and you don't try and learn the bird or the bird's habits or the habitat, then you can train your dogs till you're blue in the face. And some dogs will still come through and squeak out a bird here and there, but you're not setting them up for success. And then vice versa, if you're only focusing on the birds and you're not focused on dog work or you're shooting, you're just missing, you know, a part of the equation that brings success and what we're actually out there to try and do. Yep. Yep. So let's start with that to where I'm, I'm pretty similar and it may just be my echo chamber or, or the world of, of buddies that I've kind of accrued since I've gotten into it. But I kind of have a, a really utilitarian approach to shotguns. Like if it, if it's just shoots straight and it actually shoots something when I pull the trigger up until now, that's generally all I've been after. I, I really wasn't too interested in the different types of shotguns or what have you. It was more or less, does it fit in my budget and does it work? And so as I'm trying to take that next step and, and balance my, my game or my hunting game out a little bit more, I've, I've been going back and forth on where to really do a deep dive and start. I couldn't decide if it was more important for me to start on the shotgun side of things or the ammo side of things. Can you kind of shed some light in giving us your thoughts on for the general 
maybe brand new hunter or person in my shoes that's trying to take the next step, would you say that just the overall uh, science and build of the shotgun is more important or the ammo that they're shooting? Well, I, I think first, you know, I, I guess the ammo would, I, I think, kind of come later um, as far as, like, if you're really truly talking about kind of starting from scratch or having a reboot, you know, you it you can break it down into two parts. So there's the, there's the, the technical side, which is, um, I think, more the way you're speaking about, about what kind of shotgun is it, what the action is like, what gauge is it, you know, how do those technical aspects affect your hunt and and that sort of thing so there's the technical side of it revolving around the gear essentially and then there's the side that revolves around you which is your shooting technique your ability and and your proficiencies and again it's it's much like we just discussed you kind of want to be doing those two things and working on those two things at the same time because you know you, you know just just to kind of uh, uh, you know, put a fine point on it. You can have the best, nicest shotgun in the world. If it doesn't fit or it's not the appropriate kind of gun you want for a given hunt, then you, you, the most beautiful fine shotgun in the world is pointless, you know, or if, if you are extremely proficient and have practiced a lot, but your, but your, your equipment isn't functioning properly or isn't of good quality or, or doesn't work right, you know, equally you 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 created a problem that's really hard to solve there so you kind of want to move into those things at the same time i guess is where where i would look at it and and that involves you know again i i always talk about gun fit because that's one of the things i do that i think is really important so you know from the proficiency side of it you'd want to move into learning how to shoot uh well and having your gun fit at the same time um because and, and those two things can can kind of again they they have they evolve with each other. You're right away when you get started, you might not want to have a full formal gun fitting. You might want to have somebody you know like myself roughly fit you till you're proficient till till the gun fit is right enough that you can start to develop proficiencies in shooting. Once you get to the point where those proficiencies start to develop, you can refine the gun fit a little more, and then those things kind of revolve around each other in tandem. And until you reach a level where you can, you know, really put a sharper and sharper edge on the process. Um, so that's, that's the ability side. And then as far as the technical side, you know, that's something that just, re that really requires study and uh, experience and understanding what you're doing and, and educating yourself, um, listening to a lot of really good podcasts like yours. <laughs> anyway, so, so yeah, I, I hope that made sense. It's it, it, again, and then I, I, I like to make analogies and say, you know, if you, you, you could have a, you know, a $10,000 Parazzi, but if it's an, you know, if it's an eight and a half pound, 32 inch 12 board gun, and you're out trying to walk 10 miles a day hunting prairie chickens, that's not, that's not a great combination, you know? Uh, or if, if you've, you know, if, if you've spent the time and have a lot of, a lot of proficiency and, you've got a gun that isn't of sufficient quality and something breaks or it doesn't work in the middle of the hunt, you know, that's, that's a, that's a problem too. Yeah. And, and ultimately you, you said a few things that I, I want to expand on, but 
you started with getting the right equipment because if you're out there and you're trying to, if you're just drilling over and over and over again and you're trying to get the mechanics down and, and practice your shooting and, and all that, if you if you don't have the right equipment or the right shotgun that fits you or the one that you're going to be using in the, in the grouse woods and you're constantly practicing with that, by the time that it does come for you to swap out to the gun that you are going to actually hunt with or maybe you go buy a new shotgun or something, does that kind of make all the practice and and getting that muscle memory and the mechanics down is that kind of effectively washed out when you switch shotguns? Well, I, I think I think the point is, and this is what they say about practice is, you know, practice is great if it's the right practice. You know, you don't want to you don't want to be practicing something that's going to be deleterious to your shooting ability, right? And and I see that occasionally where somebody will will have practiced their gun mount or practiced some facet of, of shooting and either they're, they've misunderstood the process and they're not doing it correctly or their gun doesn't fit. So they're making up for, you know, in, you know, you know, insufficiencies with their gun fitting or with their gun fit. And, and, you know, so they're essentially ironing bad habits or, you know, improper technique in. So, so yeah, you, and again, that's why I said before, you kind of want to, as you're, coming into it you you kind of want to incrementally um be working on your gun fit and your technique and and it's kind of obvious you know you'll beginning shooters will realize i think will will be able to self-analyze and tell like when their proficiencies are getting to the step where hey i think i would benefit from now like a like a true formal gun fitting and having some guns made and or um altered to fit and again it's a progression but you do again to your point you do have to start out with guns that fit fairly well um off the get-go or the the ill fit will cause you to iron i I use that term iron in you know bad habits because you're you're making up for the fact that the gun doesn't fit you well and i mean and you know and, and where you see that a lot is with people who are not um shaped i wouldn't say normally but but within the confines of 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 normal you know normal being you know for a man what six feet tall or or you know five feet ten to 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 six feet tall and about 180 pounds and a 32 inch inseam you know if you're if you're that guy who everything including car seats and and shirts and and you know everything is made around then the chances of you getting a gun off the rack that are going to fit are pretty good. Well, if you're built like me, you know, I'm, I'm short and super stocky and uh, you know, or, you know, that, that guy, you know, who's six, two and, you know, weighs two forty. right. Those are people who are outside the norm of, of, you know, typical physicality. So they're the ones that are going to pick a gun up off the rack and it's not going to fit them. And if they try to, you know, wrap their shooting style around a gun that doesn't fit. That's where, that's where the bad habits and the the things that are really deleterious iron themselves into their shooting style. Yeah. And and ultimately you kind of described me on on that last piece. I'm six two. Uh, I'm around 200 pounds right now, but when I bought the shotgun that I'm currently or primarily using now, uh, 
a couple years ago, I was 80 pounds heavier. So I was 280 pounds when I first bought it. And now it, so I bought a, a, a CZ Bob White 20 gauge, right? It was off the rack, great price point, and, you know, seemed to me, and, and you may disagree, but it seemed to me it was a good, good shotgun for kind of entry level double barrels, just kind of getting into the upland world, needing to shoot birds. But as I'm trying to grow and get better at this stuff, it seems like it's just it's just not a good fit for me. I'm too I'm too lanky. Like it seems like I it's it's a really short gun for what I'm doing. And so that that was kind of my next question for you, and you kind of already touched on it a little bit, is a gun fitting advisable or or required in your eyes for everybody or is a there a general rule of thumb to where if you, if you are that average person that they make everything around just go grab one off the rack and, and go out to the skeet range and have some fun i don't want to be ambiguous but it, it's maybe a little bit of both but the thing is um one of the things is during a gun fitting there there are a lot of things that are being assessed including you know somewhat what your beginning shooting style is, eye dominance issues, um, you know, you know, basics of the actual technique of shooting. And, and I predominantly uh, am a devotee of the classic British instinctive style of shooting, which is if somebody is not classically trained in a sh- one shooting technique or the other, that's kind of the the basis of what instinctive shooting is. And there's there's some nuances to it and a philosophy behind it. And we can, we can talk about that if you'd like, but, um, that, that's kind of where I come from shooting style, but you know, gun fit is, I think gun fit is important for everybody. Um, and it, and yes, you could say it's maybe a little bit more important for people who aren't, don't fall within that norm. But, um, you know, there's, if your guns don't fit you, there are proficiencies that within sh- within the shooting discipline that you're just going to have a very difficult time developing. It it opens doors to things that that just aren't gonna aren't gonna happen. I mean, you can you know again, here's an analogy. You you might you might have have the best genetic you know predisposition to be a marathon runner in the world, and if you never have shoes that fit you, you might be a good runner, but you're never gonna get to that peak level of performance if you're if you're essentially your shoes don't fit or if your gun you know same thing with if your gun doesn't fit you may have great hand-eye coordination you may actually be you know have had some instruction and be pretty pretty proficient but if when you mount the gun and you know put the bead on the target the gun's shooting 18 inches to the right at 15 yards that's that just doesn't work you know and I don't know if this is, do you want me to go into a little bit about defining what gun, kind of what gun fit is? Would that be helpful? That was actually, that was my next question is kind of walk everybody through the key elements of gun fitting. Because I know when I first entered this world, I had never heard that gun fitting was a real thing. It honestly didn't surprise me too much because I, I mean, I know people get everything. I mean, heck, golfers even get golf clubs fitted to them. So if it's important for that, I, I was it made sense that gun fitting was a thing, but I've never gone through the process. I don't know ultimately what you guys are measuring. Like I have an idea and I can guess at some of these things because it's probably a little straightforward on, on what you guys are actually looking for. But what what is the key elements that you guys are actually measuring and how does it affect the shot one way or the other? I'll, I'll, I'll kind of, I'll give you my, my, my standard spiel on that. The 
the whole philosophy of gun fitting revolves around aligning the the line of sight and the impact of the pattern or point of aim with your eye as it lands on the stock if you properly do you know execute a gun mount so you know barrels be they an auto loader or a pump gun or a side by side or an over and under you have what's referred to as point of aim and that's the the line of sight of your barrels or barrel whatever they are or whatever style of ribbon is that line of sight is regulated so it should line up with the impact point and some guns are better than others but we're we're just for this purpose we're going to assume that that the gun is well regulated right so everything um everything that we do with gun fitting is in service of aligning your eye with that line of sight and one of the analogies that i'd like to do use is it's it's some somewhat akin to sighting in a rifle and i don't want to say that we ever shoot our shotguns like a rifle because we shouldn't but the concept of if you want to change the impact point of a rifle let's just say you want to move the impact point right you would move the rear sight to the right correct and in this case the shotgun doesn't have a rear sight the rear sight is your eye so by by using the architecture of the stock to change the position of your eye i can change the impact point um, of that shotgun in relation to the line of sight so, so again, and, and when I, when I talk to people about gun fitting, I always, and when I'm doing a gun fitting, I'll, I'll go through and describe a lot of the process. Cause I like my clients to really understand what I'm doing. And I'll say, now think back, everything we're do- doing here is in service of when you mount the gun, if you do a, execute a proper gun mount without thinking about it, your eye should be completely in line with the line of sight. So if you're, if you're looking down that line of sight, the impact point should be exactly where that bead is or exactly where you're looking. Um, so effectively during a shooting situation, you know, during, during a situation where you're shooting a gun at a target or a bird, you don't have to really consciously think about aiming the, aiming the gun or getting your head aligned with the line of sight. If you mount the gun properly, it's right there. And then wherever you put the bead, you know, whatever you, you know, execute with your with your shooting style wherever wherever you are looking with that line of sight that's where the pattern falls um and that's that's what makes you know that that's that's the i I think i kind of you know did that in two parts where i described the mechanics and also why it's so important right because if if you mount that gun and you're focusing on you know on the target getting the bead where it needs to be and you pull the trigger and the patterns a foot and a half over to the right or left, you, you've got a problem. Right. And, and, and again, there's proficiencies that you can develop, especially with instinctive shooting that you just can't, if you're always trying to compensate. And we all do that. You know, the, the American philosophy is, you know, here are these production guns and all of the shooters need to alter themselves to, essentially line up that point of aim by changing how we handle the gun and it it's very difficult to do and then you add on you know there's additional layers of uh you know that that befuddle that even more whereas not all not all manufacturers and all guns have the same dimensions so you you may have taught yourself to shoot one gun well and then later on you buy another gun and that one's different and then you know by the time we're in our you know 
by the time you're 35, you might have, you know, two, three, four shotguns. Every single one of them is different. <laughs> so you're, you're trying to figure out how to compensate for each one. And inevitably it just, it just turns into a mess. Um, and you know, that, that's why, that's why I think gun fitting is, is as important as it is. And it's, it's, it's pretty shocking to me how routinely I'll do a gun fitting for somebody who's, you know, at that beginning proficiency level and they've had a couple shotguns or maybe three shotguns and just, just don't feel like they're, you know, you know, when you're not connecting when you should, right. Every, right. I think everybody does, especially if you're in a situation over a pointing dog where that bird goes up and you get a good look and, and, you know, so people will come to me with kind of like that, that feeling have a gun fit, you know, either they order a gun or they, uh, I, I alter the gun and they've got the gun usually for one season. And then I can almost guarantee over the course of the next year and a half or two years, I'll, I'll, I'll alter every gun they own. Um, Cause they, they want it to be the same. And, and of course that's important too, to have consistency. Yeah. So speaking of consistency, how often, once you get fitted for a shotgun, is that something that every so often, just for sanity's sake, you should go get fitted again? Like maybe there's certain things that change. Like you mentioned earlier, you know, your body composition, your, your weight, your yeah. height, all that matters. Well, a lot of people's weight fluctuates and then yep. also people's vision changes. You know, maybe they got new uh, glasses or contacts or something like that. Is there kind of a general rule of thumb that you'd say, look, every three, four years, maybe get refitted? Yeah. And, and I have clients that, you know, that come every year to be checked. And, and at that point too, you know, once you, once you've had a, a, a full blown formal gun fitting, you know, if, especially if it's one that I do for a client, I don't have any problem with them coming and just doing, you know, doing basically a cursorial impact point test with a gun that I've either altered for them or the try gun, you know, it's at that point, you've kind of done the the heavy lifting of a gun fitting and you're just you're just confirming it or checking it and then at that point you know if there is a, a vast difference in where you should be versus where you are then we can go in and look at other stuff but but you did hit on the things there anything that changes um how you mount the gun or your vision will definitely affect impact so if you've had a physical injury that's causing you to mount the gun differently if you're if you've gained or lost a lot of weight if you've had, uh, you know, issues with the vision and, and really, um, like correction division, as long as you're, you know, you've got the right correction is not that big of a deal. But if you have something that would, that would cause one eye to focus more than the other and essentially, you know, flip your eye dominance and, you know, eye dominance is, is one of your eyes really kind of wants to be the one that's, that's controlling predominantly controlling the, the focus, you know, what you're focusing on. So if you're right-handed and you're left eye dominant, that creates all sorts of problems. So if you have an eye injury or all of a sudden, you know, you, you might have, you know, anything that affects your vision, that, that too can, can create a, a problem. And, you know, I'm, I'm 46 right now, or 47 right now. So I'm kind of going through that where, you know, my vision's changing a little like it does for everybody. And, and I've really got to pay attention to that. Everybody's susceptible to it, to, to having issues with eye dominance. It can, it can, it can happen. And it's kind of something you, you want to assess. There's, there's a lot of very effective ways to, to deal with it. But again, that, that is one of the things you'd want to look at. So, so to answer your question, yeah, there are things that, that affect gun fit. And, you know, once you have your, 
gun fitting done again if if any one of those things pops up you might want to have it assessed again and then and it just kind of depends on how diligent you want to be about it again i've got i've got clients that come up north hunting every year and they drop in the shop you know drop give me a call drop in the shop say howdy and you know we walk down to the patterning plate and they take you know we do one or two series just just to make sure it's there or not and you know, nine times out of 10, everything's just fine. But a few times we found issues where something needed to be dealt with. So I, I want to go into the the patterning plate here in a second. But before we before we leave the eye dominance, can you, for the listeners, if maybe they've never even done the, the eye dominant test, can you kind of walk through everybody? I'm assuming, do you do the thumb test or do you have a more accurate way of like portraying? No, I, I do. So... You know, in in eye is not just an issue for shotgun shooting. It's you right. know, baseball players, you know, quarterbacks, golfers, everybody. You know, eye dominance is is super important. I have found over the years that if you tell somebody you're doing an eye dominance check, they will subconsciously cheat it, and it you you can have issues with it. So I, I'm sh- I'm sure we might run through this. Uh, in a minute here, but one of the things that one of the parts of the gun fitting and what I refer to as the dry fitting part is this, this might sound crazy, but it, it is what it is, but I'll, I'll have, I'll, I'll kind of roughly adjust the gun, the, the tri gun. And I'll, again, I can tell your listeners exactly what a tri gun is in a second too. But so I, I make adjustments and I'll, will will have both myself and the client and whoever else is standing around is going to recognize that the gun is indeed empty nobody's got ammunition on them, blah, blah, blah. So we've, we, we've crossed the, the safety threshold there and I'll have them close the gun and there's a drill where, where I will have them um, basically line up and point at my right eye. So, you know, I'm standing about 10 or 15 feet away and I can look right down the barrels and there's a whole bunch of things that that tells me um, as far as the fit goes. And, and it, it tells me a lot about how they're mounting the gun and where the toe lies and, and, just there's a lot of data points I get from that, but one of them is, is if I'm looking straight down that barrel, I can tell right away which eye that that they're they're positioning over the rib, and they're not thinking about it. I haven't told them I'm going to do that, and I shouldn't. So if anybody who is listening now as a gun fit, I might have just squealed on myself. But it's shocking how much that'll happen. I was I was down at Sawbriar Hunt Club uh, doing a gun fitting for a lady. Uh, and, um, it was so stark that I actually used my cell phone and kind of held my cell phone up by my eye and had her point at the cell phone to take the pictures because intermittently she would mount the gun perfectly. And I was, you know, basically looking right down the rib, right into the center of her eye. And then the next one she'd mount it and the bead had, and was completely under her other eye. It was just, it was very stark. And then, you know she'd do it three times the proper, you know, I shouldn't say the proper way, but three times under the right eye and it would be under the left eye. So she was vacillating back and forth. She, she'd been shooting her whole life and had, and actually had some shooting instruction and nobody picked up on that. And she, she was having issues with it. And it's like now knowing that she knows there's a few technique things and a a few equipment things she's got to do to keep herself from, you know, having her left eye take over. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how I I deal with eye dominance. And you know, sometimes there is a condition where people have what's called central vision, where they don't really have a truly dominant eye. 
And then when they mount the gun, it'll kind of float, you know, instead of seeing the bead under their right eye, it'll, you know, and again, I'm usually speaking from the point of view of a right-handed shooter. So if it's, if it's the bead should be under their right eye, I'll see it kind of float over and it ends up being about where their nose is, you know, because both, both, both of their eyes are equally locking onto that bead. And again, that, that's actually almost the people who are, who truly have, have true central vision can be pretty difficult to deal with. But, but that's, that's how I do the eye dominance test. And it's not to say that the other ones, you know, you use your thumb or, you know, point your fingers at people or use, uh, you know, the paper towel roll, all those techniques, those can be effective. But again, I've, you know, I've had situations where somebody really didn't display any issues with, with some of those techniques. And then we get down to the plate and after shooting, you know, three or four series and wasting 45 minutes, we discover, Oh, you know, you, you do indeed have an eye dominance issue. And I've never, I've never had one slip by me when I do it, you know, when they're mounting the gun. Yeah. So that, and that makes sense. I, I got, I've got one more question essentially, and it might be a dumb question. And, and for those listeners to say, there's no such thing as a dumb question there, there is. All right. But, <laughs> but, uh, but then there's, there's dumb answers too. So. <laughs> right. Uh, but it, it sounds like I, I was kind of one of the guys that fell for some of the bad eye dominance testing. You know, the only time I've ever really been told to check for eye dominance was in boot camp drill sergeant does the thumb test and it doesn't they don't really explain any of it it's just kind of like do this up your right eye dominant or left eye dominant in your experience would you say that your eye dominance is more of a genetic thing that's just you you're you have a right or left eye dominant or would you say that it's kind of a developmental thing that perhaps you can train one way or the other with like the use of an eye patch or something like that to where you, you listed a few occupations, quarterback, driver, shooter, whatever, to where maybe they they create the eye dominance that they have now through decades and years of using one eye more so than the other. Would you say that that's something that we can retrain our eyes if necessary? Say you are the right-handed shooter with the left eye dominant uh, situation. Can you train it over to get back on the same side? So I, I can't really speak to the genetics or mechanics of why somebody is right or left eye dominant. You know, I don't know if that's something that happens at the genetic or epigenetic level or, you know, any of that stuff. Cause you know, I'm, I'm obviously seeing people when they're, you know, typically in, you know, yeah, late, I, you know, the, I guess the that's fair. I, you don't have any right, interest in right, why they're eye dominant but, one way or the other, but, but I guess that makes sense. <laughs> but, but the thing is, you know, to speak to your point, I, I have had clients attempt to do certain training regimens to to essentially train themselves out of being right, you know, off eye dominant or having central vision. And I have, you know, from my experience, now maybe there's other people out there in the, you know, the sports medicine industry or the sports optical industry that would disagree with this, but I have not ever had a client who had a lot of success with that. Um, and, and I don't know um, if there's something specific to, to shotgun shooting. I mean, I think that there are, there are, if there are exercises where you might be able to um, reinforce a certain eye dominance, but usually what solves the problem in my experience is you, you have to use some type of physical technique to slightly either obscure the vision in your off eye or cause it not to be able to focus as well and 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 force dominance on the eye and and i've seen this because it is it is a big 
issue that, and it, it's funny how much I deal with that. And, and really it's one of the biggest, if I've got a gun fitting, that's tough. It's usually something that revolves around eye dominance or eyesight. It, it really is. It really is an issue. But where I see the issue is it, it what I will say from my experience is it, that, that eye dominance issue typically gets exponentially worse as you get fatigued. So, you know, I, I've had clients who have, who have done some of these training programs and, and, um, you know, they're actually quite prevalent. You, they're, they're kind of all over the place on the internet and stuff and, and whatnot. And, and they'll think they have the problem solved. And then we're out on the sporting clays course and it's, you know, in the summer it's hot, we're halfway through our second round. And they're, they're basically shooting a perfect score until the last three stations. And they just drop, you know, 50% of the birds uh, at each station, just out of the blue. And you, and you know, something has switched, you know, or, and, and I mean, I've had issues with it myself. You know, you're, you're on the seventh mile of an eight mile day and it's 75 degrees and you and the dogs are shot and you're getting up the last part of that hill. You know, you, you just don't have the focus that you had. And that's, I, I think that's really when you're fatigued, when you're nervous, or there's just some type of outside stressor, that's when the, you, you, you know, the, um, the eye dominance issue will be more expressed. And I have seen that happen. I, I, I have a couple friends that I shoot with who, you know, that I've, that I've worked with and had, had, uh, you know, done gun fittings for, and that exact thing will happen. You know, we get a little tuckered out, get a little hot. You're, you're getting into the visiting a little bit more than paying attention to the shooting. And it's just all of a sudden they're like a different shooter, you know? And, um, you kind of know all of a sudden old right eye and left eye are getting in a fight with each other. And, <laughs> you know, the one, the one who's supposed to win isn't, you know, so. Mm. So the eye dominance, it kind of, it, it ultimately it sounds like it is what it is. And, and it obviously it becomes a bigger issue. Probably I would say that's probably a true statement across the board on, on everything to where when you're fatigued, pretty much everything is going to become harder or yeah. less efficient overall. Uh, but once you check for eye dominance, that's the first thing that you said that, that you're checking, you're, you're going to the, uh, the patterning plate, kind of walk me through that setup, you know, how far away is it? Are you ultimately just going to have a stationary object and you just point it at the, at the same spot every time and you kind of check and see how far off the pattern is? Is that, is that ultimately all that is? Yeah, I can, I can kind of run you through the process start to finish if you'd like. Yeah, have at it. Um, so the my gun my gun fittings kind of consist of three different parts and the the first part is uh a, a little bit of technical instruction as far as some very foundational aspects of shooting technique and and ultimately as a gun fitter i i don't want to i don't want to alter somebody existing shooting technique any more than i absolutely have to pre have to preferably not at all because i want what we do at the plate to be what you're going to do in the field. If I, if I change a bunch, if I fundamentally change your shooting style when you're in the shop, I can get the fitting to look great at the plate, but it's not going to stick when you go out in the field. So it kind of defeats the purpose. So, so for the gun fitting to be truly applicable, again, I want to, I want to alter what you're doing as little as possible, but there, but there are some extremely um, rudimentary foundational aspects of, of shooting, which really actually they don't affect style at all. They're just a couple and they really most, it, it's kind of three little points and it, it, they really, re, really revolve around consistency. Um, so 
about 15, 20 minutes is that little brief instructional side of it. And once we get through with that, I have the client start handling the trigun and, um, maybe this would be a good time. So a, 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 a trigun is a gun. It's either a, typically a break action gun, a side by side or an over and under. And it's, um, the stock is fully articulated. So it can be, it can be moved. The stock can be moved right to left, which is cast, which would uh, technically be uh, windage. The stock can move up and down, which we refer to as drop, which is elevation, which would be, you know, I, I keep using a little rifle terminology. It would be elevation, but the comb of the stock is hinged. So there's a knuckle, the, the whole, the, the stock moves on what's a, what's referred to as a knuckle. So that's a pivot point. And in, in the case of my trigon, which I built, it's actually a, a ball and socket joint that's right up behind the action. So the stock can be moved up and down at that point. And then also at the rear of the comb, the comb is hinged. So if you think of it like a seesaw, I can move the comb, I can change the comb angle front to back or move the whole stock up and down and keep the comb angle parallel. And, and, and comb angle is something that, you know, from a technical standpoint is, is really important sometimes. So anyway, that's, that's the trigun. And when people hear me say trigun, it's also fully uh, uh, adjustable for length of pull pitch, which is the angle of the, of the butt plate. And then of course, uh, also toe in and toe out, which is if you pin the heel dimension, which is the rear dimension of the comb in one spot, the, the toe of the stock or the bottom of the butt stock can swing in and out. And that would be for, you know, sometimes lady shooters or guys like myself that have, have bigger packs. Um, so, so anyway, the, the stock is fully adjustable. So we went through the technical side of the process, the clients handling the gun and, you know, kind of practicing a few of the things that I've told them at that time, I'm, I'm starting to assess things like length of pole and drop at heel and some of the very rudimentary aspects of the gun fit. Um, and then, you know, so you have the technical portion, then we have the dry, what I'm referring to now, now is the dry fit portion when we're in the shop and I'm going to make some kind of very rudimentary rough adjustments kind of getting things close and that's also the part of the process where i'm going to have the person you know point the the empty gun at my eye and and get us to get us to where i think we're in the ballpark and of course that's where if there's eye dominance issues we'll we'll go over and talk about that figure out how we're going to deal with it and then from there we go down and do you know the live fire portion of the fitting and my the the plate is a large it's a it's a full sheet of quarter inch steel sheet metal uh the center of the targets are seven feet off the ground it's exactly 16 yards from the shooter and we do what i refer to as shooting a series so there's there's six inch uh a blaze orange or blaze green dot on that plate and with live ammunition the client will shoot anywhere from three to five shots at a given point of aim um and we we take an average of where those where the pattern impacts and then I make a judgment of, okay, you know, the average of those first four shots was low and left. So that means I've got to make an adjustment to the stock to bring the pattern up and over to the right. So I'll go through and make a set of adjustments to the stock. Then we shoot another series and essentially, you know, shift that, shift that impact point around until we get it to where we want it to be. And, you know, usually that's obviously that that's always 50, 50, right to left. You know, if, if the if the shooter is proficient enough, we can we can make some kind of micro adjustments to the pattern as far as you know some 
quite a quite a few of my clients want their bird guns to shoot a little high so i can i can program in you know is this going to be a 70 30 or 60 40 um you know how how much fine tuning we can ultimately do revolves a lot around how consistent the client is but so so once i've adjusted the stock in in all of those uh dimensions till you know myself and the client are comfortable where it's shooting then it then we go back to the shop and i have uh you know essentially a measuring tool that that straps onto the barrels of the shotgun that follow the line of sight and then i take a set of measurements and the measurements there's there's nine measurements so you've got You've got drop and cast, i.e. windage and elevation, at three points on the stock. So the nose of the stock, the heel of the stock, and the center of the comb, which which I which is referred to the at face dimension. So you've got nose, face, heel. So you've got the the right to left and the up and down on three points, which gives you basically a straight line, which is the center of your comb. And then you've got the length of pull and the pitch. And there's also stuff that we record as far as you know grip style and and you know they're the fit is affected by is this going to be an over and under or side by side or an auto loader and that type of stuff but the true product of the fitting is basically it's a it's a worksheet it's a little like it looks like a little spreadsheet and you just have these these nine dimensions that you know effectively give you a three-dimensional map of what your ideal stock is and then from that point you can use it you can use that information to place the order for a new gun with a custom stock if, if that's what you're doing you can have me measure guns that you have and alter them as closely as they can be to fit you. Or you can go to purchase an existing gun and know what the dimensions, what your ideal dimensions are versus what those dimensions are of the new gun. So, you know, you know, if you really want the gun and it doesn't fit properly, you can figure in, you know, can it be altered? How much is it going to cost? And, and kind of figure that into, uh, into that possible purchase. Mm. So when you're altering, can, can pretty much the majority, if not all of the shotguns be altered to the the dimensions of the shooter? And and would you argue, I mean, obviously the level of changes or alterations, that's going to change on price level, but in theory, can all of them be adjusted to fit each individual shooter? No. Um, and, and that's again, one of the, one of the things that's important about having that fitting information is, is once we have that, I can tell you what can and can't be done because there there are a lot of situations where we just can't get from here to there especially say on you know over and under guns that have through bolts so that would be like your berettas and your brownings and and guns like that i don't know if, if people know that but the, the action is is held on to the wood with a long uh narrow bolt that runs in from the back of the stock and essentially you know screws into the back of the receiver pulls the receiver onto the wood now I can bend those guns for cast really well. They, they, they take cast bends really well. They do not like to be bent for drop very much. Specifically, it's really, really hard to get them to go up. So if, if you've got a gun that you either own or you're thinking about buying that's an over and under, a side-by-side with a true bolt, and it's low compared to your numbers, that's, that's going to be a problem. Whereas, you know, and that's, and that's what I, you know, I, I call... I refer to it as the feasibility study. You know, if somebody brings me a, a gun and says, what do you think of this? I can put it through the feasibility study and say, okay, you know, and in some cases it might be that it needs a, it needs a cast bend and a recoil pad uh, put on it to adjust the length of pull. Easy as can be, not super expensive, you know, down the road you go. Or again, it might be that, you know, it's, it's a quarter of an inch too low 
And I just know that there's no way I would ever get that to come up enough to break the stock without breaking the stock. So again, it, it can be, it can be all of the above really. It just depends on the initial condition. So yeah, to, I, I guess the answer to your question, there are instances where a, a certain gun just can't made to be fit with, of course, there's always, you know, custom restocking, but um, you know, that's, that's a whole nother thing in and of itself. And, you know, sometimes that there's a necessity for that. Sometimes there isn't. And, you know, sometimes it's worth it and sometimes it isn't. It's, it, I guess everything's kind of, you have to take each one of those um, possibilities individually and figure it out as you go. So, yeah. And, and ultimately to kind of the way I just took everything the, the way you're talking about the adjustments and, and whatever, every measurement and term meant to you is ultimately I'm, I'm just, putting it together in my head to where I'd say that the average hunter or, or person listening to this has some level of familiar familiarity as, in terms of zeroing in a deer rifle or or maybe they're in military to where well, I think you mentioned it earlier uh, in this conversation to where in rifles you have that rear sight aperture that you can adjust left to right, top to bottom. And so you go to the zeroing range you pop off three to five and then you adjust based on, on how that goes. But going back to the eye dominance, our eye is essentially the rear sight aperture for a shotgun. And so ultimately you're just taking what the rear sight aperture does on the rifle and they're, and you're just pretty much doing it for the person, which unfortunately, or however you want to look at it is ultimately just the stock in general of each shotgun. Right. Yep. I'm, I'm again, I, I like to use the term, you know, architecture but i'm i'm using the physical shape of the stock or or we're using the physical shape of the stock to control your head placement i.e your eye placement to get you pre-aligned with that line of sight and that's that's kind of there's a lot of there's a lot of technique and technical stuff that that builds on top of that as you get a new instinctive shooting and um you know some proficiencies like that but that's kind of where it starts is you mount the gun properly. You've got your head down on the stock where you're looking, where that bead is. That's where the impact point goes. And and again, changing changing the shape of the stock changes where your eye is. And um, you know that's that's the process. And again, and also with one thing that I think might be important to understand, which is I, I kind of take for granted, is that um, you're you're not having to align you know physically go in and think i need to align myself with the with the line of sight and, and we've all seen that you know or done it you know you, you you're picking up one of your friend's guns he gets a new gun and you pick it up and you throw it up and you realize hey the ribs way off over to the left and you you've got to roll your head over right or or push your head down or pick your head up that's that that's that um you know altering yourself to the gun rather having rather than having the gun altered to you so I hope that I, I, I don't no. know if I made that point before, but yeah, that's, yeah. you know, you, 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 you don't want to have to aim a shotgun, like a rifle. You shouldn't be looking, you know, you shouldn't have to consciously think about where you're placing your head. If you do your gun fit properly, it should just be there. Cause you know, I, I use this, I use this statement a lot too. We've all shot at a, 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 a flush bird, be it off a flush or a pointer how long do you have between when you recognize that there's a bird going up and when you typically pull the trigger? I mean, it's, it's far less than a second. A lot of times, like it happens fast. And the reality is you don't, 
you don't have time to you sh- you don't have time to consciously be thinking about oh i'm shooting my remington 1100 today that means i've got to really bury my face in the stock in order to get this thing to line up like you can't do it there's just there, there's not enough bandwidth to do that compensation or or you do put a bunch of energy you know or a bunch of bandwidth into making that compensation and by the time you get around to shooting the bird it's either out of range or you haven't compensated enough and you make a bad shot yeah and ultimately that that's what i was going to say especially you know different birds you probably have a different time as far as different birds you know are you on the prairie or you in the grouse woods the grouse woods especially there's a reason why they call it instinctual shooting you just need to be able to pull up cheek on the stock pull the trigger you have your lead and all that stuff and and that's very difficult for a first time grouse hunter to kind of comprehend the fact that you're not going to have time to adjust your cheek on the stock or adjust your lead essentially ultimately like you're just gonna it's instinct it's just it needs to pull up and it needs to happen without you even thinking about it yeah yeah and there's well and i, I and i do i and, and i mean again this this might be getting somewhat esoteric but the when when i refer to instinctive shooting i'm referring to a a, a specific shooting style that was developed by um you know guys like uh Percy Stanberry and uh, Churchill, Jack Mitchell was a shooting instructor that was a big uh, a devotee of that. And it's it's a it's I, I should try to explain this as properly as I can. It's a it's a type of shooting that the shooting style you don't ever consciously think about leads. You you really just focus on the bird, and this is something that not a lot of people understand when they hear the term instinctive shooting is the the mechanics and the process of your gun mount and coming to the target are actually what calculate the lead right and you you if if you're properly doing instinctive shooting you don't consciously think about lead ever that is that is built into the process it's it's actually a a very interesting and, and kind of beautiful thing if you become a practitioner of it and you can do it well because you can pull stuff off that you wouldn't you wouldn't really think possible if you're if if you if you develop a proficiency for it. And anybody who's interested in that, there's there's a lot of material out there about true British instinctive shooting. But one of the reasons I I, I bring that up is in true instinctive shooting, um, gun fit is paramount, right? Because you are not focusing on aiming the barrels, or or I shouldn't say aiming the barrels, but using the the rib or your um sighting system really at all other than the bead other than getting getting the shotgun in the right spot and executing your gun mount so if your gun doesn't fit it's really difficult like if not impossible to truly you know do instinctive shooting well but it's one of those things where if you do get it right and and you're you kind of develop a proficiency for that style it's really incredible especially for birds like quail and woodcock and grouse and you know even some of the prairie birds you know hun specifically you know you get these these small birds that you're in relatively close proximity to you know i only need to leave that one a foot and a half you're not with instinctive shooting you're not thinking of any of that stuff yeah so i want to backtrack to when you were talking about setting up the uh, the shooting plate you you mentioned specifically 16 yards as if that like that is where it has to be every time. Why 16 yards? Is that just kind of how your trigun is calibrated as far as well, corrections? So 
I don't know who figured this out. I'm assuming it was it was the British or New Continental Europeans. They they figured out that roughly at 16 yards, and I'm saying this roughly, but uh, a sixteenth of an inch on of of change on the stock will roughly equal about an inch to an inch and a half, or more or less, on the plate. And I've actually you know, I've got a fairly good math background and one time for the fun of it, I actually, you know, did the trigonometry on that, you know, making two opposing triangles, uh, you know, one starting at the bead back to your shoulder and one extending out to the patterning plate. And it does, it does make sense. And that's, that's why, you know, when it, you know, a true classic British style, um, gun fitting is always going to be done at about 16 yards. And I mean, I don't, I don't want people to get the idea that, you know, if, if they pattern their gun at 16 yards, they can start making 16th inch increments on the stock and, and, you know, use that, use that statement as a process to do their own gun fitting, because there are quite a few other anomalies there. You know, everybody responds differently to a different amount of alteration on the stock, but that's, that's why we always do it at 15 yards or 16 yards. It's, that's kind of the theory behind it. I guess it do, doesn't really hurt upland hunters. I mean, I think, what is it, 20 or 25 yards if they say that on average most of our shots come under anyway, so 16 oh, yeah. yards is right there anyway. So I, you could probably say that the bulk of the rough grouse shots or at least the uh, the effective shots uh, for the most part are probably around that, that distance anyway. Yeah, yeah. I think, especially for rough grouse and woodcock, like I think people really, especially if you're someone like myself, who you know i hunt the whole season and i'm one of those masochistic guys that kind of actually enjoys the the early season um i just think it's exciting and i i you know i find it challenging you know hunting with a lot of leaf color it it just kind of turns all the challenging side of it up to 11 and uh i mean there's a lot of times where 15 shot 15 yards that that might be the longest shot opportunity i get all day you know i think i think i think it happens a lot faster and closer than people kind of want to recognize. Yeah. Are you, are you as specific on the different chokes you're using in terms of patterning? And ultimately where I'm getting at, you kind of touched on is if somebody wanted to go in their backyard or, or downrange and just see if their patterning is a, a little slightly off, they could possibly set it up at 16 yards, but I'm trying to paint a picture here to where, use this choke, not that choke, you know, kind of walk us through that if choke even matters in this instance. Well, I, I think, I think it, you know, it, it matters. I think, I think it, I think over choking is probably more predominant than under choking. And I think the closer you are, the, the bigger, you know, it, it makes, it makes a lot of difference if you're, if you're over choked, you know, up front because, you know, you can, a lot of guys, you know, if a bird gets up out far away, you can say, Hey, that one's a little bit out of range. I'm not going to shoot at it. I mean, if the bird's flying across you, I mean, not too many people hold off of a shot because the bird is too close. Right. And and that's very prevalent in the, in the grouse woods, especially. And with like, you know, you start hunting with a dog, like, like Bill, my cocker, you know, the way he hunts, half the birds are coming straight back at me. Right. So, but so I, I think that speaks to your, your point there a little bit, but I, I really, 
again, it's, it's one of the things that I encourage hunters to do. And I think it's one of the things that is, is needs to have more attention paid to it is people need to learn, need to take their guns out and really experiment and learn how they're shooting and what they're shooting and just, just kind of teach themselves by actually going out and patterning their guns. Like, what is this gun actually doing? How big is that pattern? You know? And, and there, there is such a variety of, um, loads available now as far as wad style and what your shots made of and all of the aftermarket chokes and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you, you can't just put an improved cylinder in and think it's going to be throwing what you would believe to be a classic improved cylinder pattern at 15 yards, you know, and there's, I mean, I can speak to the technical process of doing, you know, analytical patterning as far as like telling somebody this is quote unquote, a improved cylinder or modified choke if you want me to. But I, I think the more important point is, you know, if, if you're grouse hunting, you should take your gun out and try a couple different chokes that you might want to use with two or three of the different loads you want to use and, you know, shoot them at the distances you would be shooting what you think you would be shooting your birds at, and then go look at it. And, and I think people a lot of times are surprised at how much difference there is, how much difference there can just be between two different loads, you know, even, even load, even loads that are the same payload and technically the same velocity they might pattern sometimes as much as two choke sizes different. Yeah. And if, and if you don't know it, you don't know it. Um, Ultimately that's kind of what has not prevented, but kind of delayed my, my enthusiasm when it comes to figuring out the shotgun stuff, because it's one of those things that here comes an often overused word. There's so much nuance to all this stuff to where if you change one thing, you could also contribute whatever that one change does to 10 other factors. Like you said, you know, the ammo is not even consistent amongst the same manufacturer almost. Like you you can get the same uh, load, the payload and all that stuff, and it's completely different because it's a different style wad or, or I, I don't know. It's like... Oh, yeah, and I mean... <laughs> It's, it's important. And, and I mean, I'll, I'll sound like I'm getting preachy here, but it truly is. And, you know, I can use some examples. I, I have a, um, a big, heavy Beretta auto loading shotgun and it's my, it's my duck gun and my turkey gun. And I don't hunt as much waterfowl as I used to. I don't really hunt too much at all anymore, except for some occasional layout blind hunting for geese. But, um, I, there was a manufacturer that came up a few years ago and, and I really like their stuff. And I just, was having problems with it and i'm a fairly decent shot you know I'm, I'm decent enough to know when there's a problem and i just couldn't i couldn't figure it out i took it out to the patterning plate and lo and behold the the factory modified choke out of that beretta for that specific type of shot and ammunition was throwing almost an extra full pattern mm. and you know i'm thinking hey i'm shooting a mod or a light mod and i'm shooting you know decoying geese and, and I'm, you know, at, at 25 yards, my pattern was the size of a softball. And I, and, and, and had I not taken it out and patterned it, I would have no idea why I probably would have blamed the ammunition or think I was having a bad day. When in reality, I, I switched, I switched down to an improved cylinder choke. And with that specific load, you know, the improved cylinder choke was thrown basically like a improved modified. And I've been totally happy with it ever since. And you know, you'll, 
it's those little anomalies like that that you don't realize. And, you know, to again use the term, it's those nuances where if you don't have that figured out and you catch one of those and you don't realize it, you, you can it can really befuddle you. You can have some real problems and you know not know how to solve it. Yeah. You know, it's it's those it's those unknown unknowns that get you. Well, and ultimately, that's kind of that stems why I was asking at the very start of all this: is it more important to get the equipment right and then w- work on functionality and, and your your mechanics? Uh, and because it's like to me, the way stuff makes sense in my head is I change one thing at a time. I see what the results are from that one change before I go changing anything else. If I go get fitted for a shotgun, I get a brand new shotgun, I get new chokes, I change ammo, I change all my mechanics, I'm trying to do everything all at once, maybe I start shooting better, but I have no idea the cause of why I started shooting better. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I mean, I I usually, again, I would always put the, the, the again, the shooting, the the technique and equipment as far as your guns in front of ammunition ammunition really like that's kind of the last part of that puzzle is taking out and saying okay i'm pretty proficient with my shotgun now and i'm i've i've got a you know my gun itself is what i want it to be you know it's the right gun for the right uh, application and that's when you go out and you know it's very similar to somebody shooting groups with a rifle you know you go out and you you say well here's three different kinds of shotgun ammunition that you know look like you know technically they they'd what you know do what i want them to do for this hunt and you go out and you shoot a pattern with all three kinds of them with you know all three kinds of ammunition with the choke you think you want the one underneath it and the one above it and you look at those patterns and you you make a decision about which one of them best fits so uh, and and again it's you, you i guess the moral of the story of that is you should be doing all of that everybody should be doing all of that not yeah. you know you you're, you're going to get around to it all at the end you know you should you should get to the point where you've done it all and you know at the end of the day anyway so yeah well as we kind of start wrapping this up there's a there's a few other questions maybe people are completely uh, as i am unfamiliar with the fitting process generally you know prices are going to change based on where you're at the availability and all that stuff generally what would a gun fitting process cost somebody if they're interested in actually going to get one done you know the the gun fittings i do at my shop they're you know roughly four hundred dollars um you know sometimes i i'll do clinics where the people who are putting on the clinics might might charge a little bit differently but that's that's what my formal gun fittings at my shop typically cost and it's um you know i've i've it it may seem like it's a little you know like it's somewhat expensive but in the long run the the and and i mean let's face it too for a lot of people if if they're not going to one of my remote clinic one of the remote clinics that i put on occasionally um or or you know manufacturers or people put on um getting here is an expense too but I've never, I've, I've literally never had a client that went through a fitting and afterwards said, gosh, you know, you know, I don't think this ended up being worth it because in the, especially if you're a beginning shooter, if you look at, you know, walking into a specially gun purchasing situations with the knowledge of what your gun fit needs to be, I mean, that gets you out of so much trouble, keeps you from making decisions that, you know, you know, that you really can't come back from other than selling the gun and, you know, selling it, you know, you, you go out and you see a gun you can't live without and a shotgun and you buy it. 
and all of a sudden bring it to me and I've got to give you the bad news that, oh, I can't make that gun fit you or the amount of work required to make a gun fit you is going to be 75% of what you paid for the gun, right? That's, that's getting into those situations are the main thing that knowing what your gun fit, uh, you know, causes you to avoid. And it's, you know, a, it's worthwhile because a, you're going to be a better shot and enjoy what you're doing more and be more successful and B, you're not going to waste a whole bunch of money. Um, getting getting to where you need to go i i hate that that i mean that's one of my the worst conversations i have with clients because it's just you know i don't like to be the bearer of bad news i don't like to have somebody who's been looking you know wanting this one specific kind of gun since they were a kid and they finally went out and saw one for a good price and they bought it and they bring it to me and you know they, they they're not shooting it well and i measure it up and say hey sorry like this this isn't this doesn't fit you at all i can't alter that stock to fit you so it's going to be, you know, this much money for a new stock or you've got to sell it and start looking for another one again. Mm-hmm. It's, that's not a fun conversation to have. It's not, it's not fun for me. It's super not fun for the client. Right. Well, so, you know, you don't go into business to give your, your clients and customers bad news, right? That's not, it's yeah. not why anybody really goes into business. Uh, and all right, here, here's another dumb question alert, you know, warning here. This might be a completely stupid question because we just spent over an hour talking about the importance of fitting and how everybody's completely different. Uh, but let, let's turn the tables a little bit. Let's say that the person listening to this, it's intriguing. They want to do it. They're just not able to do it. Maybe they can't afford to, to come to you or maybe there's somebody not in the area or maybe it's just not in the budget, right? But they need a shotgun. In all of your years and experience seeing all these different people and and fitting them, are there certain, and this is dangerous, I know, general underlying kind of observations or trends that you've seen that for the most part, the average person might be better going with X over Y? You know, it, does the average person tend to shoot auto loaders better over and under side by side? Do you have any kind of just kind of loose trends that we know is not applicable to everybody, but for that person just starting out, just wanting to get their feet wet in the uplands, you would advise them to to consider and look at? I'm trying to think how to best answer that question. You know, it's, it's dangerous. I know. <laughs> well, well, it's 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 you know. So going back to what I said before, from, from, from coming from that point of a new shooter, if, if we're really truly talking about somebody who's just learning to shoot shotguns, um, I would say look at getting a gun that would have the capacity to be, to be altered. So, and, and I don't know if that makes sense to you, but, you know, buy a gun that's of good enough quality to hold up. Um, to what you're doing and, and get one that, you know, again, at things like maybe ha- you, you'd maybe want to have a gun that's, that's a little higher and a little longer so that if you, you know, because I couldn't bend the stock down, bend the stock down or file the comb down or cut some wood off of it. I, I can't add it back. So, you know, I guess making, trying to make sure you're getting into a gun that could be, that would be as versatile as it could be for the fitting process. And, and, you know, a lot of the, I, I don't want to be brand specific, but there's, there's a lot of companies out there that have, uh, you know, have um, these shim systems and, and for beginning shooters, those shim systems are pretty good, you know? And I think 
I think that's that situation where I was talking about before, where if I've got somebody that's that's super green that's going to come to me, I'm going to do that same thing that I talked about in the fitting, where the first thing I'm going to do is sit down and say, okay, here are the three basic fundamental principles that you you really need to get these the, these three things right, and everything else is going to flow downhill, you know, downstream from them, and get them so they've got that proficiency started and then get them into a gun with you know maybe a shim system or a gun that can be altered and let them do that first phase and and again like i said i don't i don't want to throw brand names out a whole lot but you know they've all got them greta benelli um you know all the big manufacturers and i think i think benelli's even got over and unders now that have shim systems in them right and those are those are good entry level type situations and then when you progress further along um and you get to the point where you know you really do want to formalize and have a good gun fitting you know there's there's companies like the upland gun company and you know or having a custom stock made where once you've got the proficiency you you get a fitting done you really know where you need to be then you can take and have something specifically made for you you know have me or or a gunsmith or you know a gun maker make a stock for you or find one, find a stock that is perfect to begin with. So, but the one, the one thing I'll say too is, is it's kind of, as long as you know that the gun is of sufficient quality, I would tell people to maybe, to maybe save up for a little, a little higher quality gun. People tend to be sentimentals with the, you know, sentimental with the first nice shotgun they got or the nice, the first gun that they really learn to be good with. So, you know, look at getting your something that's not, you know, at the super bottom end um, where you're going to have issues with quality and reliability. So that's, that's something too. Again, and, and again, I want to say that knowing that you're, if you're going to spend a little bit more on a gun that's more durable and has some of the features that you might want, it'll be a little bit more effective in the future. Make sure you want to get one that's, that's not in a condition that won't allow it to be altered in the future. So, so IE, what I'm saying is don't go out and, and buy a gun that's got a, you know, a ridiculously short length of pull, right. Or, or buy a gun that's got a whole bunch of drop, um, or, you know, buy a gun that has some type of odd, uh, anomaly to it that wouldn't allow it to be fitted. And, and again, those things are pretty like, like a whole bunch of drop or super short or, a really strange stock configuration or something like that. Yeah. So makes sense. I don't sense. know if I came, came anywhere near to answering your question <laughs> on that one or not, but not at some point listeners to, to this podcast and, uh, and all the other podcasts are going to get sick of being told, you know, save up your money and just buy a more effective, whatever it is, whether we're talking guns, shotguns, boots, what have you. But it, it ultimately is kind of the name of the game with everything is you get what you pay for. And that that's kind of a fact of life here to where, you know, it, it, you want quality, you, you need to, you need to balance that out. And it's not up to us to really tell anybody what, what is the happy medium for them, I guess. Well, and, and the thing is too, you know, that I'd like, one of the things I say about that is, you know, if you save up a little bit more and you buy a decent shotgun, uh, one that's, that's of good quality, you will probably have that gun for your whole adult life and maybe give it to your kids or grandkids, right? Like some of, you know, some of these good quality guns are just, Heirlooms. They can be in families, yeah, for for generations. So, so, or you could buy something that's really, you know, bargain basement type quality that's really inexpensive, and 
you know, I some again, I'm I'm I am not gonna be brand specific here, but there are some guns out there where people get them, and you know, two seasons in, the firing pins are breaking, and the sears on the you know the sears are going to hell, and there's just you know there's issues. So, you know, what looks like it might be a really good deal because it's super inexpensive in the end, it's going to end up costing you more because you're going to have to completely replace it. And then you probably take the step of saying, okay, this first one was, was, was garbage and it fell apart. So I've got that expense that I've burned up now and I'm going to go and buy the gun that I should have bought the first time. You know, <laughs> right. so. Yeah. Now it makes, makes, makes sense. Uh, so you mentioned the, the fitting events you go around, you mentioned Sawbriar earlier. Do you have anything else on the calendar already? Will you guys be doing anything at Pheasant Fest perhaps? I know that's coming down just a week or two away. I am, I am going to be at Pheasant Fest with the Upward Gun Company. Um, I can't, I'm, I can't, you know, I can do some gun fitting assessment there. I really don't, I really can't do, you know, good quality gun fittings without shooting, but I will be at Pheasant Fest and, um, we do two seminars, one in the spring and one in the fall, one in, one in May and one in August up at the, um, uh, at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp up there. And that's also where Upland Gun Company is based out of. So we do, we do fittings for the clients that, that have bought Upland Gun Company guns. And then if somebody wants to, wants to be there and just get a fitting, we do that too. I do uh, usually once, if not twice a year down at Sawbriar in, and that's in like North, North, North central Tennessee. And um, it just kind of depends, you know, it, it, you know, I, I will travel and do gun fittings if a group of people, you know, if I can get, you know, four a day over the course of two days or something like that, if, you know, cause I've, I've done situations where there's a gun club that's got a, you know, a bunch of people that want to have fittings done and I'll go down and I, I do have a portable patterning plate so I can set up pretty much anywhere that the, that the weather, um, allows and that there's a good, uh, you know, a, a range where we can shoot firearms, I can set up and do a fitting. So, um, nice. Yeah, so the, ultimately the, eight to 10 people and maybe that they can arrange a, uh, a fitting with you to where you come down for a couple of days. Yep. Yep. And I know we're going to be scheduling for the May and, um, August event at, uh, at Pine Ridge. So there's, yeah. there's that. And I think we're, we're working on setting up another one, um, for the fall down at, at Sawbriar. So there's that too. Cool. Cool. So, and then there's, and then a lot of my clients come here. It's, you know, the Traverse city area is uh it's a really pretty area there's sleeping bear uh, uh national lakeshore sleeping bear dunes national lakeshore and traverse city so a lot of my clients don't have trouble getting their families to want to tag along to come here and hang out for a couple days so um traverse city is kind of a it's a very destination touristy area and there's uh, there's a lot of stuff to do so Love it. So if people are interested in, in coming up and visiting you directly, where can they find you and your website and, and social media and all that stuff? And, and we'll wrap this up. It's, uh, it's at, uh, it's at Upland Space Gunsmith on Instagram is, is kind of the best way to get a hold of me. And then my, um, my business email is D W H I T M A N at C E N T U R Y T E L dot net. That's so D Whitman at Centuries So, all right, love it. Well, Dell, I appreciate you coming on, taking the time, kind of holding my hand as 
as I just start the kind of uh, shotgun shooting proficiency journey. You know, that's something that I, that I needed was something else to take up more of my time and, and ah. to obsess with. But uh, I think it's just part of the journey. It was kind of inevitable if I really wanted to take that next step and become a better hunter like I aspire to be. Uh, but it's uh, it's probably going to be first of many conversations that I have with you down the road. But uh, I enjoyed it nonetheless and already already learned quite a few things. Sounds good. Glad I can help. Yep. Well, appreciate it. And we will check back soon. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dell. Again, this is kind of a, a few weeks in a row that I've kind of stepped out of our comfort zone, come to, to you guys with a little bit different style of an episode or at least uh, the subject. But I feel like it was a warranted subject, especially given the fact that the standpoint or outlook that we come at this podcast in terms of dog-related uh, topics and, and training topics, it's, it's always with a mind of why do we do this? Why do we train dogs? Why do we go through the effort of staging all these crazy hunting scenarios in the off-season to go then chase wild birds in the off-season? And that's just it. It's to hunt. Hunting implies that you're going to hopefully be shooting at something. And this is something that I felt, especially here recently in the past few seasons, I, I've kind of, it's been lackluster on my part to where I can sit here and try and better myself on the dog training aspect. I can try and better myself on the habitat and the woodsmanship and learning plants, learning the birds, patterning them. All that, all that stuff is great. It goes into it. There's a reason why I prioritize it, but especially last year, last season, not so much this one that's just wrapping it up. Uh, I shot horrible the worst shooting I've ever had in my life. And so for about a, the past year or so, I've, I've kind of forced myself to, uh, to listen to more podcasts, read few, uh, a few more articles, pay attention to the shooting aspect of it, whether that is from the standpoint of a shotgun or ballistics and, and having resources such as the, the shotgun specific episodes that Larson puts out has been a huge help. And, and I noticed that just by what little kind of passive uh, attention that I've given it this past year, whereas in years prior, I, I never paid attention. As I said in this episode, I, I'm kind of a uh, just utilitarian when it comes to shotguns is if it points and shoots, I kind of stood by the fact that, hey, it's a scatter gun. It spreads. The pattern spreads. You know, I, I didn't really put too much stock into, you know, something being a fraction of an inch off and it gives you that drastic of a difference on the spread uh, by the time it reaches the target. Didn't really think that it was going to be that drastic given that, that shotgun shells and patterns are supposed to spread out. But clearly, that's just kind of my, my barbarian way of looking at, at a lot of this stuff, and it takes me a while to come around, but when I do, I, I start picking up on it. It does matter. There's a reason why people 
nerd out on this stuff, essentially, because it does make a big difference. I think in the episode, Dell talked about how, you know, he's had some spreads up to like 16, eight inches off at the patterning plate. And as you guys heard, he's only putting that 16 yards off. So if somebody is shooting dead center, center mass with a shotgun, they pull the trigger and they're 16 to 18 inches off one way or the other, that's essentially one yard off or, or one inch off per yard going to the shooting plate. That's a big difference when you're trying to to bag birds. And, and this year especially, I noticed my my shooting improved, especially as it related to how I shot last year. This year, though, it was a lot streakier. When I was on, I was really on. When I was off, I was really off. And uh, so I kind of went about, it, it was a few weeks ago, I was down at my buddy Scott's place. We got a duck hunt in. Uh, I borrowed one of his shotguns, so completely different shotgun. Uh, couldn't even tell you the chokes. Couldn't even tell you which shotgun it is at this point. All I know is it was an auto loader, And I shot it. And I'm telling you, there, there were some ducks flying at me to where... I just knew I shot him. I just knew it. It's uh didn't need a GoPro. It just nope. I I aimed. It had the dead. I had the lead. I had everything. I shot it. Bird just kept flying off. Uh, did not pattern that shotgun, but I left there thinking, okay, I have to figure this out because there's no way on some of those birds I actually missed. And it was shooting some of the ammo that I've been shooting elsewhere across across the country year you know all season long. Uh, with with pretty moderate success, and so it, it, I couldn't really blame it on the ammo. Uh, sure, there's a chance that I could have just been physically off. Maybe my can- mechanics were that far off, but you know, generally when it's something like that, you you can kind of pick up on it. It's like, okay, I'm not mounting it correctly. I'm pulling the trigger instead of squeezing it. I'm jerking. I'm not leading. You shoot the shotguns enough, you kind of you kind of figure it out. So uh, anyway. It, 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 it was just the fit of the shotgun was different, I, I guess. And uh, so when the opportunity came to get Dell on here and kind of pick his brain on this fitting and stuff, I jumped at it because at the end of the day, again, we focus on the why. Why do all this stuff if you're not actually going to put yourself in the best position possible to shoot these birds uh, ethically and, and, and effectively? And uh, that's where I'm at now. And so it's just you know, tack another thing on there for, for me to do a deep dive on and try and get better at and learn myself uh, that ultimately I've just never really paid attention to. So hopefully you guys got something out of this. Hopefully uh, you learned something and you're just as curious or or motivated to make yourself better, uh, such as myself on this topic. And uh, I'm not going to sit here and say that we're, we're going full-fledged into gun fitting and, and gun topics and stuff like that. But don't be surprised if, uh, if the random episode doesn't pop up, if there's something I'm curious about that I think you guys might find valuable and interesting as well. Uh, but Dell is obviously, as we, as we alluded to, he, he's kind of made the rounds. He's, he's one of the, uh, the top sources on, on this topic. And so it was, a, it was a pleasure having him on. We might have to have him on and, and talk a little bit more flushing and pointing dog action with him at some point at least. But uh, anyway, it's uh, trust me, 
we're we're going to be getting back to these uh, bird dog topics very soon and some training topics. I got a lot of stuff in the works that I think you guys are really going to enjoy. Uh, I, I just need need a couple more things lined up before I can kind of announce what I'm I'm working on. But I think there's something that uh, a lot of listeners have been asking for 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 quite a while, and I don't think that uh, I'm just again a couple just a couple confirmations away from a few people to uh, be able to 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 really line uh, something up that I think everybody's going to appreciate. Um, Something else that I think you guys will appreciate at the time that this recording is out right now, you can go over to YouTube, the Gundog It Yourself Rough Grouse Hunt with Nick Larson of the Birdshot Podcast and Andrew and Jacob of the Southern Outdoorsman is live to the public now. It was early access for essentially a month on Patreon. We, I am already working on other videos as well, which will be early access once ever I get that done. I uh, just need time to breathe, and, and hopefully I can piece together a few more videos for you guys. But we're really excited on what we're doing with the video space. Uh, I'm experimenting a lot with it. Uh, each one's going to have kind of a different feel, but overall you're going to kind of get the concept by watching this this rough grouse video. Uh, but it's something new, so bear bear with me. You know, it, we we hope to get this as high a quality as as we possibly can, just like the podcast. And I think we're well on our way. Uh, the feedback I've been receiving from that rough grouse video is uh, it just it means the world to us. The fact that we put in so much time and effort into this video and uh, the 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 feedback has been as positive as it has. Where I'm I'm just super excited to. Uh, continue bringing content out that you guys find valuable but if you want early access to future videos as well as extended outros profile episodes on the video uh, a number of different things go check out our patreon it's patreon.com forward slash gundog yourself if you get value of this podcast please consider signing up uh, five dollars a month is the minimum tier that's literally buying me a beer once a month. You know, I'm stealing that from uh, Bob Owens of Lone Duck, but essentially that is what it is, is just saying thank you to a uh, to a podcaster, YouTuber, whatever it is that you like, if it's not us, uh, whatever, just consider supporting them. And, and uh, you know, hopefully they, myself and, and others continue to put out the content that, that everybody knows and, and, and enjoys and hopefully learns something from. But yeah, with that being said, I don't think that I have anything else to add. Uh, the He did mention that Dell on the episode that he will be at Pheasant Fest. He will be at the Upland Gun Company booth. That is booth number 1419, 1419. So if you're interested in checking out Upland Gun Company, where I know Larson will be at, uh, Dell will obviously be at, you know, Write down the booth number, go check them out, and uh, hopefully you get something out of that and you enjoy that. With all that being said, I am going to wrap this up. I'm going to continue this over on Patreon with the extended outro. This week, we I'm going to be talking about my thoughts and impressions on dog power and balancing the dog power out on extended hunting trips and stuff like that. So if you have any interest... Go sign up for Patreon. Uh, We're excited to continue bringing more interesting and and fun content over there. And uh, with that being said, to everybody else, thanks for hitting play. Thanks for downloading. Share with a friend. Leave a rating and review if you haven't already. It means the world to us. And uh, we'll check back next week. Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, 
review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash gundog it yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high grade lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.